Hi, I'm Andalisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we go back 100 years to the start of Prohibition, the rise of Italian food in America, and how cocktails changed during that time in our history. So Prohibition in the United States was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages from 1920 to 1933. So it's like 100 years ago is when all this started happening. Yeah, for 13 years, too. That's what's so crazy is how long Prohibition lasted. It wasn't, yeah. It's like you think of it as this like flash in the pan. It's 13 years. Yep, and it decimated um, restaurants, and it, yeah, it, 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 did, it, did, it did a lot of damage at the and time. And for, for me, I'm a, big, I'm a big cider buff, and what people don't realize is why Americans, you know, why our cider can't really compete with France and Spain and, and England is because we tore out all of our trees. So we used to have tons of cider varietals, hundreds of varietals around the country, and they were torn out. Like like uprooted and it decimated you know um, farmers and that's why we switched to all that sweet culinary fruit. So when you go to the apple orchard now, it's you know it's Northern Spy maybe is the most savory, but it's you know Macintosh and Red Delicious and John of Gold. Right. Now you know Honey Crisp. Yeah. So yeah, I mean we we used to have really great, incredible, diverse apples and and uh, we're getting it back. But that's kind of why cider's trying to come back is because prohibition. You know we're still a hundred years ago. You know we're still recovering from it. And there are still places in the country where it is enforced. Yeah. Like, there are still counties in, yeah, dry, in the United States. Counties, where, yeah, there's dry counties. Oh. So um, this 18th Amendment. So here's the interesting thing about the 18th Amendment. It, it only forbade the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors, but not their consumption. And this was a bit of the loophole. Yeah. I mean, some people started hoarding it. I mean, they built these giant wine cellars in their basement and just like... Had all the wine they thought they would need for I don't know, for however long this thing was going to last. Yeah. So the other, so here are the exceptions, and this is kind of funny. So sacramental wine was still permitted for religious purposes, and so all of a sudden, a questionable number of rabbis and priests soon, like you know, started to pop up everywhere. So there's like <laughs> yeah. suddenly there's more priests than ever, and, and there's more rabbis than ever. Drug stores were allowed to sell medicinal whiskey to treat everything from a toothache to the flu. So a physician could give you a prescription every 10 days for like a pint of hard liquor for your toothache. I know. I wish I could like, still do that, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, the, the, um, the, the doctor's notes would say take three ounces every hour for stimulant or till stimulated. So that's kind of how this was. Everybody was joking about this. But this is when the speakeasies started to pop up as well. And that was significant because there were so many of them. And this is where uh, people were consuming alcohol. And well, actually, it was being made illegally. So now we're getting, you know, illegally made alcohol and then people were consuming it there. Even Walgreens started to do the pharmaceutical part. They, They went from 20 locations to like 500 during the 1920s because... They wanted to make money, and that's how you made money. But the speakeasies and Italian food, I think, is fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's where you could argue that Italian food was introduced to Americans because the Italians were opening speakeasies by the thousands. And even though it wasn't necessarily real Italian food, it was kind of the, the protein-heavy American approach, but it was still made by the Italian immigrants. So mom would be make, making pasta and getting the food ready, and then obviously dad would be out making wine or you know other kinds of moonshine. And it was... Um, it was. It wasn't really the true Italian food, but they still were making money and 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 pouring out liquor. And so, even after prohibition, this sort of laid the groundwork for 
Americans' appreciation of Italian food, and I, the rest is history. Now there's I don't even know how many Italian restaurants there are in the United States. And that style is still around too. That you know that that red sauce is kind of where that that came from. Right, and so it was it was different, but it was made for the American palate, I guess, back then. And but now it's kind of its own category because I do love classic Italian, like real right. true. But like I mean, I still crave you know proper red sauce too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Now we're going to get to something called bathtub gin. And this was scary because... There was no regulation on it, and thousands of people died from consuming yeah, it's incre- bathtub gin. It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, you still, like, you know, I mean, obviously that's where moonshine, I mean, if you go down to, you know, Kentucky, Bourbon County, you can find some bootleg moonshine for sure. Have you and ever had any? I have, but I'm not going to tell you where. And it, it's intense. It it's intense. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's not to be taken lightly, but I mean, there's people that still, it's, it's called, at this point, it's cultural. You're talking about a hundred years. There's a few generations of people that, that made their own shine and it's, right. it's a part of culture. But yeah, I mean that's incredibly dangerous. You got to know what you're doing. Um, all right, so it, it had all these different kinds of effects on it. Um, New York City, in terms of the speakeasies, there were more than thirty thousand of them. And here's something about the Motor City: Detroit's alcohol trade was second only to the auto industry um, in its contribution to the economy, which is that's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. You know, our history with Prohibition, too, I mean, obviously with, you know, you look at look at bars like, um, like Cliff Bells or, you know, the DAC kind of is was famous for the Last Word cocktail, which is one of my favorites. My girlfriend Sam's favorite drink ever, which is based on green chartreuse. Um, and, and, and that's kind of our gift to the, to the beverage world because you can still find the Last Word in cocktail bars across the country. And it's from Detroit. They say about 1918 is the, is the guess of when it came out. Right. Um, and then, you know, even Grey Ghost is named after an old rum runner, you know, the, the Grey Ghost of the Detroit River. So the, the prohibition culture in Detroit is, is alive and well. Um, so, you know, eventually prohibition was lifted pretty much everywhere. And some states, as we mentioned, they still like kept it enforced. And even today, which I think is kind of crazy, there's I think there's about 10 states that have counties where alcohol sales are prohibited. That's uh that's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> Did you ever try to make your own alcohol? No, um, like no, no, not 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 really. I mean, you know, obviously, I have friends that do. You know, cider and beer are pretty common. You know, the home brewing, and but you're, you know, you really, it's a lot less dangerous. I mean, distilling, you know, just the methane. And there's all sorts of, you know, there's a lot of gases that are that are produced. And when I travel, you know, like down in mezcal country, down in, in Mexico and Oaxaca. Um, you know, there's a lot of those mezcals that aren't allowed to be imported because they don't really, they, they just do it kind of all by old school, by touch, taste, and feel. And if you're not careful, I mean, yeah, you can get, you can get in trouble, you know, uh, you can get sick. I, I think there's like a little bit less dying, you know, nowadays right. than there was then because it's probably less illegal alcohol. But yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be careful when you're, you know, especially when you're traveling to other countries that, they, you know, I mean, there's in the Caribbean, there's people getting sick and, you know, getting and dying. If you, if you drink tainted alcohol, it can be very dangerous. Obviously, we're not doing it in, in, like we did in Prohibition, but it's still out there. It's still out be there. Careful. Be careful. Don't be drinking that bathtub gin. Take it easy. <laughs> well, there was another drink that was created during Prohibition because the goal was is the bathtub gin was so 
difficult to take. Yeah, was, there's a lot of sweeteners put right, into drinks, right? Sweetening, lengthening, um, you know, kind of diluting. Those are the real measures people would take to make liquor palatable. And that's really where cocktail culture comes from. That's why a lot of your, you know, cocktail bars are kind of prohibition vibe. Because a lot of the drinks, like the last word and like the one you're about to talk about, the bee's knees, they came out in this era of having to make this horrible, you know, liquid palatable. <laughs> and so you'd add sweeteners or tonics or lengtheners. And a lengthener means like you basically would add a beverage to make it less strong. Right. So, the, yeah, the bee's knees is, is, a, is a classic. The bee's knees came out during Prohibition and it used honey. So it was honey and lemon juice and gin, basically. Yeah. And so do people come, come into your restaurant and never ask for it? Is it like this, well, or is it this defunct kind of drink? No, no, not at all. I mean, the idea, like, a lot, you know, there's arguments that there's only like a handful of recipes out there, period. And then the ingredients just get interchanged, right? I mean, there's only like a handful of cocktails, and then it's just, you know, it, you, you change out the ingredients. So this is, a, this is a classic. I mean, you basically have acid, and then you have sweet, you know, and then, and then, and then your, your syrup. So honey is, is lengthened by adding water, basically. So it's a syrup. It's a honey syrup. And then uh, a lemon twist in the gin. So, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a three-part cocktail. It's super simple, bright, fresh, and easy. So, I mean, that's, that can be made in a hundred different ways. But I would say bartenders mostly will have a, a spin on it. So maybe they make, maybe they make a different stop. Maybe they use whiskey or they do something different um, or an aquavit cocktail. So it's a little bit, you know, less ABV, but no, I don't really think people come out asking for bees knees, but the con- <laughs> they're, it, they are now, but it, yeah, but it also, it comes up in conversation because a bartender might say, Oh, this is our spin on it. Uh-huh. Or, you know, if, if like for a restaurant like Mabel, which we have our own honey on the roof, right. when we start harvesting that now it makes sense. Like here's a bees knees using our own honey. It's more of a conversation piece. The bees knees might be making a comeback with honeybees in the spotlight these days. We would like to thank LaMarca Prosecco for their support. In the hills of Veneto, Italy, you can never go wrong with Prosecco, whether it's in a spritz or drinking straight. We'd also like to thank you for listening. Joan Isabella is our executive producer. Associate producers are Lisa Brancato and David Lyons. Production provided by Studios on the Pond and Rowan Nemisto. Original music by the Mallet Brothers. This is a production of Detroit Public Radio Station, WDET. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and join us as we explore the world of food and how to cook it right here on Essential Cooking.